I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark as we're continuing in our study. As I mentioned just last week, we're starting through one passage of only 20 verses, and I couldn't get through it in one week. There was just too much to tackle there. So this is part two of looking at the authority and compassion of Jesus Christ as Jesus demonstrates his authority over demons. Some people, and I guess some animals, aren't real thrilled about a deliverer. The reason I say some animals is because this morning I was reminded about that story I've shared before about the squirrel that found its way down the chimney into our wood burner stove back in Tecumseh. Uh, There was no flame in the stove at the time, gratefully, but our kids heard something scratching around in there, and sure enough, there was a squirrel trying to figure out what to do in that little prison of his. And the closer I got, the more animated that squirrel got until he was just bashing himself around in there trying to escape me. If he only knew that I was his deliverer, he wouldn't have hurt himself so badly because finally when we were able to get him to crawl over into a cardboard box, we were able to carry him to safety and he had freedom. But not everybody's happy about a deliverer. We see that in Scripture. We see that a lot of times in the Old Testament, especially with Moses, the great deliverer, the liberator of those Hebrew children from Egypt. Moses gets there with Aaron as his spokesperson and helper, and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. You remember that one? And of course, what does Pharaoh do? Well, he's not real happy about that either. He gives a command to the slave drivers, and he says, okay, take away the straw, make them go get their own straw, but don't decrease the quota of bricks they have to make, which means now they have to work twice as hard to be able to make the same amount of bricks, and they have to do it in the same amount of time. So the people weren't real happy about their deliverer, and they grumbled. And then when God finally breaks Pharaoh's heart and the Hebrew people are released, the people are happy for a minute. And then they get to the Red Sea. They got the Egyptian army behind them, the sea before them. They're saying, whining again, grumbling, Moses! Why did you bring us out here in the wilderness just to die? Are there not enough graves back there in Egypt? Grumbled some more. And then they start running out of water a little farther along in their journey. And they're saying, what are we going to have to drink? Moses, they're grumbling and grumbling. So they're really not real thrilled about their deliverer. And then God supplies miraculous food, that manna from heaven, the word that's derivation of some words that means, what is that? appropriately enough. They say that it was some flaky kind of material that showed up with the dew every morning, a little bit close to the size of a coriander seed, and they could pound them into cakes and said it was pretty tasty. It might have tasted something like a little pita bread made with honey. Not bad. But were they happy about that? No. They grumbled some more about that. And so basically, I guess you could say that God was whipping up this miracle food every day, so you could really refer to it as Miracle whip. Some people might grumble about that too. But. Uh, so are the people grateful? No, they're not grateful. They grumble because they have to eat the same boring, miraculous food day after day, which makes me think maybe that would be a good sermon topic someday when miracles are so pervasive that they become boring. And it makes us wonder, are we missing some of the daily small miracles over and over again so that we kind of lose the significance of all that God does for us? But that's for another thing. We'll put that aside aside and get back to the regular thing in progress. When miracles are so numerous that they become boring, that was the children of Israel. They kept seeing God's hand at work again and again and again, and yet they still grumbled. So just because 
God performs a miracle and releases somebody from bondage doesn't mean that everybody's going to be happy about that. Mark 5, 1 through 20 shows that. Not everybody was elated. Steve gave us a little foreshadowing at the end of the service last week, pointing ahead to what we're going to see today. We're going to see, first of all, how this man responded to Jesus, the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons. Pop quiz time, by the way. How many Roman soldiers in a legion? 6,000. Good for you. You get 6,000 more living water points for remembering that for a week. Good for you. Jesus delivered this poor, wretched man who had been horribly tormented and who had been living the most miserable existence imaginable. And through this act of deliverance, Jesus was fulfilling his calling, his anointing. It was something that he had said about himself, why he had come to earth in Luke 4.18, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. So he was doing that in this unusual miracle. And he had traveled to the opposite side of the lake from the western side of the Sea of Galilee all the way over to the eastern side to seek out the most wretched example of a wrecked life he could find. And then he set this captive man free to live in complete wholeness. But not everybody was elated about that miracle. Today we're going to see how this guy was delivered and how he responded, but also how some of those people in the area, that region of the Decapolis, the Ten Cities, the Roman area, had responded to this incredible miracle as well. First, let's answer a couple of questions that come up as we read the passage. Where did the demons not want to go? If we're being good observers of the passage, that's one question that pops up. Luke 8.31 is a good parallel passage that talks about the same event, and he gives a little more detail than Mark's uh, gospel. And it says that at that time, the demons had begged Jesus not to send them, not just out of the area, like Mark says, but into the abyss. Now, where is the abyss? It was sort of a bottomless pit, we can read about in Revelation, that the demons would be held in. It's kind of like detention for high schoolers who did something bad and threw a spitwad at their teacher when the teacher had their back turned to them. And so they were kept in detention there until they're going to get their just rewards. So that they're knowing that this is something they don't want to do, and they're begging Jesus, please, please don't send us, not just out of the area, but don't send us into the abyss. Don't send us into the, into the detention area, because we still got a lot of havoc to wreak between now and the end times. And then Matthew, we also see this, Matthew 8, 29. What do you want with us, Son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before, and I quote, the appointed time? That's interesting. It's interesting to me that somehow these demons have a view of eschatology. Eschatology is a fancy word for the part of theology that looks at the end times. Death, judgment, the eternal destiny of the soul, what's going to be happening when God writes his final chapter. And the demons have an eschatology. They have an eschatological view. And their view is kind of narrow. They're not nearly as omniscient <laughs> as God would be. And all they know is it's going to be bad for them. And they want it to be put off as far as possible. So clearly, they did not want to be sent into the abyss. The view of demons that we see in the New Testament gives us a clue that there's something going on in the spiritual realm that we don't know much about, but we know that they knew enough about it to want to avoid punishment 
because it's going to be eternal and it's not going to be good for them. They were also aware that this horrible event that they know is coming is going to be in the distant future, and they seem a little confused because Jesus shows up. It would be like the high schoolers, the, the people had conspired against their teachers, so they were all going to throw spit wads at 5.04, and bang, they do that. It hits the blackboard. The teacher spins around and sends them all to the detention room, and they're thinking, we have to sit there until the end of this next period in class, class period, and then they'll come release us to whatever our next punishment might be. Maybe we'll get expelled, maybe not. Maybe they'll just send us to class. But all of a sudden, the principal appears 10 minutes into that detention time, and they go, "Uh uh-oh, this can't be good. That's sort of what I'm guessing is similar to what these demons are feeling. It's like, why is this guy here? Because they knew that his presence meant that something related to that end times punishment was taking place, and it was confusing to them. They did not want to be cast into the abyss, and so they were begging Jesus to do something different. Let's notice something else that we see again and again in Scripture, but when things are awful around us, as they are in our world today, we tend to forget this. God turns evil and tragedy into His perfect purposes. He's really good at that. Who would have thought that good would ever come out of that wretched man's life story, the guy who's living without clothes, around the tombs, given to fits of rage, breaking chains and shackles, who would have thought that his life story would become a great testimony? Well, apparently God thought so, because this is exactly what happens to this guy. The next thing we notice in this exorcism, and that's a strange word for us to use, because normally when we think of it, we tend to connect it with Hollywood, and this is nothing like Hollywood. In fact, most of the stuff we read in the Bible is not like the way Hollywood tries to depict things. We see these people who are almost uh, powerless against Satan, and they're fighting, and they have the crosses, and they're putting them out there, and they've got holy water, and the demons are connecting with these people, so they're throwing people all around. All Jesus has to do is just speak the word, and bang, thousands of demons leave this guy and go into the pigs as they had asked to do. His word is powerful, and that's one of the things that we see about Christ. So even in the midst of all the craziness of our world today, we need to remember that by going to God's word and reading Christ's words, his words are still powerful. And that's where we can find solace and peace and a hope for the future because things are not going to be bleak forever. So what about the pigs? This is interesting. A lot of questions come out about the pigs. There are still a lot of questions. Let's see if we can answer a couple of them. Verses 10 through 13, demons were begging Jesus not to send them into the abyss, as we saw in Luke or out of the area in Mark. Instead, they wanted to be sent where? Into the swine, into the pigs. So the demons went out of the man into the pigs, and they all rushed down this steep bank on that eastern side of the Sea of Galilee into the water, and they drowned. And that causes some people to think, and I think this is erroneous, that the demons must have a host in order to exist. But if we're reading carefully, does that passage actually say so? It doesn't. It says they wanted to be sent there, but it didn't say they had to be sent there. And we don't see other instances where they have to be sent elsewhere. One passage, it talked about them being out in the wilderness or in the desert for a time. So it sounds to me like they don't have to have a host necessarily in order to exist. But why did they ask to be sent into the pigs? I wanted to explore this a little bit. Did they prefer it? Did they have to? Let's just, to use some ubiquitous terminology, put a pin in that right now, and we'll circle back and catch that a little bit later. Stay tuned.
One thing that does seem interesting about their request, there are pigs in Israel. Now think about that for just a moment. There are pigs in Israel. What about their dietary laws would make this unusual? Well, we found out when we lived in uh, New York for one year, and our son was four years old at the time, this is quite a few years ago, we found out that there were dietary laws, and we were rather naive about them, which means that we were ignorant. <laughs> and we went to a Jewish deli, and we're used to having breakfast bagels. And so what do we think about when we think of a breakfast bagel? So we tend to think of putting some meat on there, maybe some cheese, maybe we heat it up a little bit, maybe like an Egg McMuffin or something like that. So this Jewish guy looks down at our little four-year-old son who's so cute and naive and innocent, and he says, what do you want on your bagel? And my son says, ham, please. And he was not very nice about it. He goes, we have no ham. And I thought, uh-oh. And he goes, oh, what else do you want, son? Bacon? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't go over well. So we had to explain to our son that there are certain things that these particular people did not eat, and that was the case in many parts of Israel. So some people, and again, I think mistakenly, start to think, well, maybe this was Jesus' way of punishing the people who were the pig owners back, back there in that region because they weren't supposed to have pigs. So he was killing two birds with one stone or 2,000 pigs with one legion of demons. Anyway, whatever he's doing, they were thinking that Jesus is using this as a retributive kind of uh, operation in the lives of these people. However... A couple of problems with that. One problem that I personally have with that is that it sounds like he would have had to sort of bargain with the demons so that they would do his bidding that way. Hey, Jesus, we got a deal for you, man. Here's the deal. You get, those, uh, you get these demons out of this guy and send them into those pigs, and we'll take care of this other problem for you, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of be in cahoots with you about that. It almost feels that way. Jesus does not negotiate with terrorist demons. He doesn't. We don't see that in Scripture anywhere. So I don't think that that's part of what's going on here. And when we start reading into who lives in the Decapolis, this was Roman territory. Who were these people? They were Gentiles. So all that becomes sort of a moot point. It goes right out the window. You can't say that this was a part of God's way of punishing people for having pigs. Gentiles could have pigs. Wasn't against their law. NBD. So that shoots down the theory that Jesus is punishing people because of that. Now, here's another discovery that we make about Jesus. And as we're seeing in Mark, we make lots of discoveries about him, about his personhood, his identity, but also about his character. He was leaving Jewish territory, which is why many of the disciples didn't spend as much time on the east side of the lake, because that was Jewish territory over near Capernaum and Bethsaida and other areas on the northwestern side of that, that lake. And he went all the way across over here on the eastern side on purpose. And what did he do there? He sought out the most wretched guy around so that he could do something miraculous in his life. That's the heart of Jesus. And if he would seek out the most wretched person around, that gives all the rest of us hope. Because most of us, as I mentioned last week, are not running around living in tombs, cutting ourselves with jagged rocks and given to fits of rage. Most of us have life quite a bit better than that guy had, but if Jesus can help him and transform his life completely, he can absolutely help every single one of us. One of the points that's, that Mark, I think, is making in this true story. So let's get back to the question, why did the pigs run into the water? I told you we'd put a pin in it, didn't I? All right, here's one possibility, and I think it makes sense. 
Maybe the demons were just causing trouble. <laughs> it's like, hey, that's our thing. That's what we do. We wreak havoc. We cause trouble. And they wanted to rebel against Jesus. So it's possible that they were thinking, oh, please, Master, don't send us out into the abyss. Just send us anywhere, but not there. Send us into these pigs, for example. And they're thinking to themselves, oh, we got them. Because if he sends us into the pigs, then we're going to cause those pigs to go down the hill and drown. Ha, ha, ha. So, yeah, it seems to be within reason that they would have wanted to create havoc. And they also knew that the pigs were valuable. Uh, an entire herd, 2,000 of them, that's big income in that area. That would be huge to those folks. So they're thinking, we're going to wreak havoc here. So if no pigs had been killed in the exorcism of the legion of demons, the outcome might have been very different. People might have been astounded, like in chapter 2, that we talk about the man let down through the hole in the roof. Jesus forgives his sins, and then to prove that he has the power to forgive sins, he heals the man, said, pick up your man and walk, which he does. So they might have been astounded, but it would not have been front-page news the way it became because of the pig incident. Let's look at verses 14 through 17. This is the result of the incident. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed. What does that imply? He had been undressed. And in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and they told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So what does Satan love to do? We know this from Scripture. He loves to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his M.O. And what did he do? He stole those pigs, so to speak, because they certainly didn't belong to Satan. They belonged to the pig farmers. And they killed them by sending them into the water to drown, and they wreaked havoc. So he was destroying a lot of people's livelihood as well. He stole, he killed, he destroyed. That sounds like the work of Satan to me. And some people... And I, I think they push this a little too far. Some scholars push this in the direction of saying that some of those people who had been more worried about their livelihood than about the miracle that they had seen are saying, get out of here, Lord. We don't want anything that you have to do with us because you're destroying our livelihood. Well, they were Gentiles. They didn't know anything about this Jewish Messiah that was predicted like the people on the western side of the lake. I think that's being a little harsh because if I had been in those Gentile shoes, I might have thought, yeah, this guy is killing our pig crop. <laughs> this is not a good thing here. So here's a good question that we need to ask ourselves, though. Regardless of whether we are on the Gentile side of the lake or the Jewish side of the lake, would I be willing to give up worldly wealth and the world's definition of success if it meant following Jesus to do what he wanted me to do, knowing that the eternal reward he has for me is far better than anything the world has to offer? Would I be willing to do that? I think the people on the eastern side of the lake had a lot more learning to do yet because this is still fairly early on in Jesus' ministry. So maybe this is something that would have really gotten their attention and they might have warmed up to the idea later, especially after the crucifixion. But I, I'm not quite so harsh with these folks that said, you need to leave, Lord, because yes, it was a miracle, but you killed a lot of our pigs. Let's look also at verses 18 through 20 and see how the former demon-possessed man reacted to Jesus here. As Jesus was getting into the boat, 
the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Can't say as I blame him. Jesus did not let him but said, go home. Boy, doesn't that have new meaning. Where had he been living? Out in the tombs and in the hillsides and the caves. And he says, go home. This is a big shift already to your own people, indicating probably he was Gentile as well, but it could have just meant his own oikos, family, friends, and associates. Go home and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Now, many of you may have seen that movie about Louis Zamperini, the long-distance runner who became a prisoner of war in Japan. Uh, The Lord saved him through a lot of stuff because he went into the war. He was up in a plane. They were going to do a recon mission. The plane lost an engine, went down. He and a couple of guys survived in a life raft for 47 days. Unbelievable that they would even survive that long in a life raft, only to be rescued by the Japanese. Yeah, rescued. So that they would be put into a prisoner of war camp. And because he was a famous guy, they picked on him more than everybody else because they were going to try to make an example of him. They were going to try to torture him until they would make him say things that were not true. And he just wouldn't crack. And so the movie's called Unbroken because the man was unbroken. Can you imagine after all that stuff, In surviving for two years in those conditions, the first time he was able to get back home and walk through the door and see his own people. Wow. I kind of get that same sense as I think about Jesus telling this guy, go home. Go home to your own people. And think about it too, how effective his testimony would have been because he is from that region. And so these people knew that was the guy that we used to tell our kids, don't go home from school by those tombs over there because there's a guy over there and he's nuts. They would say, yeah, that's the fellow. We see him now. He's seated, dressed in his right mind. That's the same guy. Powerful. So for him to share his story, even though he didn't have two years of missionary experience, he hadn't been to Bible school, he was just telling what happened to him had to have been a remarkable testimony in the Decapolis. So, instead of hanging out with Jesus, he becomes the first missionary to this Gentile region on the east side of the lake. Now, there are other times when we see that Jesus heals somebody, and he says, now don't tell anybody what just happened to you. We've seen that numerous times. That's not the case with this one. At this time, he's saying, yeah, go and spread it far and wide. For one thing, these aren't Jewish people, so they're not going to try to make him king of Israel by force like they did over on the other side of the lake. So it's not going to disrupt his ministry that way, and it appears that he was planning to go back over to the other side of the lake anyway, even though these people were pleading with him about that. So he doesn't say, don't tell anybody. He says, go and share your story, buddy, which he does. The result of the dead pigs, what about the death of all those pigs? Did you know, by the way, and I found this out last Wednesday in our coffee meeting, that pigs can swim. An astute listener looked into that, and I looked up some of that stuff too. They can swim for short periods of time. They do sort of a dog paddle, except I think you'd call it a pig paddle. But they can't keep that up forever. And most of the time that they've tested that hasn't been when they've been infected by a legion of demons kind of have that working against their favor there. So at first, the result of this event in the community is that the people are asking Jesus to leave the area. 
But think about how God turns this negative experience into something positive. This is, again, where we see it again and again, especially in Mark, because he's real good at pointing out these redemptive moments in Jesus' ministry. Think about a boring young kid who grew up with a Christian home. This is my testimony. My testimony would have been blah, 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 yawn. Yeah, Christian parents uh, never did anything really to write home about in terms of rebellion and that kind of stuff. Accepted Christ at a young age. I had a nurturing family. They continued to help me in my walk with the Lord. Here I am today. Ho-hum. This guy was infected by thousands of demons. And yet, he's whole and telling a story to everybody. This is front page news. This would have been all over Twitter back then. It would have been on TikTok, and they would have started cloning it and using all of the different sound bites to make new videos, and it would have gone viral multiple times. This would have been a big event back then because God was turning a negative thing into a positive witness to a lot of people. A lot of people are going to be hearing about that. Uh, do you remember, those of you who are probably above 40, the love bug, unless you've been looking at our television history, with Dean Jones, the actor, he would play these really goody-two-shoes, nice-guy uh, roles, especially for Disney back then. Um, can't say that they'd be playing the same kinds of roles today, but Dean Jones was a really neat actor, and yet in his autobiography, he says that while he's playing all these great, upstanding, exemplary kind of roles, his life was a mess. He was struggling with self-worth and self-doubt and all this other stuff, and he would get drunk, and he's driving his car fast all over the place. And he said, so finally, he had this come-to-Jesus moment, and he came to faith in Christ. And it was a massive change for him, massive. And he started attending a fairly well-known church in the L.A. area, and the pastor actually even called on him to give one of his testimonies one time, and he's looking around like, me? I'm a newbie, man. I'm just a fresh convert. What do I know about that? He said, just tell your story, Dean. And he did, but the thing that I found interesting, which is a parallel to this guy and how it became important and turned to good, shortly after he was saved, he was feeling so gratified that God would pour out his grace and mercy on a guy like him, a sinful guy like him. And he was sitting there in this opulent home in the L.A. Hills with his wife, and he said, you know, God has blessed us with so much stuff, but I'm realizing now that all this is just stuff, and if all this stuff would be gone tomorrow, God is enough we would still be the happiest people on the planet. Their house burned down that night. And he said the strange thing was that he started to almost become under investigation for arson because this person, the fire marshal, shows up to try to determine the cause of the, the flames. And Dean is sitting in the ashes praising God. <laughs> He's going, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for giving me such blessings. Because he really got it. He understood that now his life was so different that it had been wretched before, and he was satisfied not with the stuff that his fame had gotten him, but his satisfaction was solely in Jesus Christ and what he had done for him. That's what happened to this guy in Decapolis. A real story. He's got a real testimony to tell now, and it was made even more powerful because of the massive destruction and this massive disrupted supply chain of bacon in the area. Sure, it might have caused some trouble early on, but it became such a great opportunity for the gospel to be spread. Here's a question. This is the question that kept nagging me as I'm studying through this passage. Because I'm looking at television, I get mad every time I turn on the news these days. Do we really think that 
the demonic forces that we see at work today are strong enough to derail God's ultimate plan? No, of course not. It's so easy for us to get focused on the doom and gloom that we forget stories like this that really happened and that still happen today so that God's not derailed by that at all. There are certain types of self-defense techniques. I got to talking with Jacob Elwell because he's doing some Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and he was talking to me about the different kinds of things that they do. You can come at an opponent if you're trying to fight somebody, and you can try to meet them strength for strength, head-on, equal and opposite force and push them out of the ring or, or, or get them to go down so you can wrestle them and put them into submission. Or you can start to try to use their momentum against them. If you're pushing and all of a sudden you let go and they start to get off balance, then maybe you can use that to your advantage. I see God doing this again and again. I see even if the demons had said, throw us into the pigs over there because we're going to wreak havoc, God is still one step ahead of that. And he's going, okay, you're pushing against this one. You're going to try to wreak havoc here, but I'm going to use that momentum against you. I'm going to turn it into a gospel spreading opportunity. Watch this. God's continually doing that. We look at Joseph and his life and all the times when he was beset, and yet God was with Joseph. And then even when his brothers were there and he was found out, and then they realized, oh, man, this is our brother, the one we sold into slavery. He's probably going to kill us. And he goes, no, no, you meant this for evil. But God meant it for good, the saving of many lives, which is happening right now. Can we see, even in our world today, that God could take something as awful as Russia's oppression against Ukraine and say, could God actually turn that into some good at some point? Of course he can. Can't see some of it yet, but of course he can. We're getting reports back from missionaries and pastors and other people because our communications possibilities are so much more vast now, so that we're getting almost real-time intel one town, they've pushed the Russians out so much already because of their fierce resistance, the Ukrainians, that they've already started reteaching seminary classes in this one place. The church is still strong. One place had started a church that had grown to 500 people, and they said, we can't keep this to ourselves. Let's start a new church in the other area. And they did that. And then when that building was rocketed and it blew half the building apart, they said, we'll rebuild it. We'll start in the fall, but we're meeting in other people's homes and we're still having church and we're still going strong. The church is thriving because the church is not dependent on that building. Have there been lives lost? Yes, unfortunately, thousands of them. It's tragic. God manages to bring good out of horrible situations and he's not done yet. So whatever his ultimate plan is, he's not pulled off track. He will never be pulled off track for his ultimate plan. So I think that he is grabbing some of these crazy things that Satan tries to throw against him, and he says, yeah, just watch this. Boom. And he turns that momentum right back on him again. So when there's so much bad stuff in the world, and there is, it's easy for us to just slide into anger and despair. But we need to look up. And we need to look into God's Word because Jesus' words are still powerful today. And looking into this Word encourages me because it lets me know that He's not done yet. He's still in charge of this world. He's still sovereign. We can trust Him implicitly. Things have looked worse, believe it or not. Even in biblical history, you look back at some of the things that were happening, all you have to do is read through Hebrews chapters 11 and 12. You start to see some of the things that people went through in their faith for Christ and what it cost them. The instant we start painting the end of the story as being terrible, we have stopped operating 
under a Christian worldview. I'm going to read that again. The instant we start painting the end of the story, our eschatology, in a negative light as being terrible, we have stopped operating under a Christian worldview. Because our Christian, biblically informed worldview is, yes, things are still going to get tough. We see that all through the New Testament. But even though we're going to have to go through these temporary trials, as Paul might call them, they're just temporary, light afflictions. He went through some things that were really horrible, and yet he's calling them light afflictions. That's relativity at work, because he says it's going to get better because we have the plan, and God knows what that plan is going to be, and it's going to be good. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Listen to this from the Apostle Paul too, Romans 8, 38 and 39. Thinking about this from this man's perspective, the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons, and about our worldly perspective right now and what's going on in the world. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, including legions of demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's some insights about Jesus. I'm going to close with this, and it's a wonderful insight. And when I saw it, it was a light bulb moment. It's about a thousand watt bulb. It was great. Mark 5:19 says this: "Go home to your own people," Jesus says to this man, "and tell them how much the Lord, see that term that he uses for him, the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you." Now, who is Jesus talking about there? Could he be talking about just God? He says the Lord. Usually he's using the term son of man to describe himself, and yet here he says the Lord. But look how the man responded. So the man went away and began to tell everybody in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Interesting. And this is not braggadocious uh, pride on Jesus' part, because we know, too, that it was the one who had compassion on him who set him free. I think this is a revelation of Jesus' identity. He is the Lord. He is co-equal with God. And again, we need to see that again and again in Scripture, especially in the early part of his ministry, and we see it so blatantly here. The one who has compassion on us is also the one with the most authority, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And we get to see it so clearly here. He's the one who restored this guy to wholeness. Angels? Yeah, they're powerful, but they have limited power, limited authority. Demons, same. Jesus, no limits. There's no limit to his power and authority and his compassion. So here's the question for us. Do I, make it personal, do I recognize Jesus' authority in my life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see this demonstration of Jesus' power, but it's always blended with compassion. Everything that motivates him is his love. And he has a love for lost people. He has a love for broken people. He has a love for confused people, people who have self-doubt, people who have confused what real success looks like, people who have placed their faith in things instead of placing their faith in God. 
And Father, you seek them out and you restore them to wholeness by reminding us that all we have to do is simply take a step of faith and trust you as our Lord and Savior because that free gift is available to everybody who calls on the name of the Lord. And I pray that we will do that. That if there's somebody here today who needs to say, God, I need that. I want to trust Christ. I place my life under his care. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart and mind through your Holy Spirit to indwell within me so that you can begin that sanctification process, that working day by day in my life to help me become more and more like Jesus. And if somebody has done that, they've taken the best step possible. And Father, we're so grateful for what you continue to do, showing us that even though, even though things get bleak, we can keep trusting you because you have the end goal in mind. And nothing will thwart you from your purposes. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.